So, <laughs> so thank you all for coming. Um, I was uh, meditating last night and this morning on Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. And I was, um, just, uh, thinking deeply about his extraordinary qualities. And so I'd like to mention a few things that really, that I thought, that I thought about and other things. Um, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur plays in history a very pivotal role. As we know, uh, his father, Bhakti Vinod Thakur, revived uh, Lord Chaitanya's movement. There were, of course, Vaishnavas in the world who loved Lord Chaitanya, but there was nothing like a movement. And so Bhakti Vinod Thakur, utilizing his uh, high position within the colonial government, and acting as a pure devotee with a very uh, with ex with a great education, he was even from the point of view of worldly history, he was a leading intellectual of his time. He wrote poetry in three languages, and he was a pure devotee, an extraordinary soul. So Vaktivinoda Thakur, uh, it was to this family, to this father, that uh, by Krishna's arrangement, Bhakti. Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was born. He inherited certainly his father's brilliant intellect. Uh, he did not in, have his father's propensity to, or not, or simply, he did not get married. He remained a Naisiku Brahmachari. And it's interesting because he also had, you could say, an intellectual life uh, before he. Uh, manifested, revealed himself as a great Acharya. He taught Suri Siddhantra. He was a college professor. And uh, and then at a certain point, he, uh, he began the mission for which he took birth in this world. And uh, Bhakti Siddhanta, if you look at what he contributed, his father had built up a mission but in his father's mission, uh, as far as I know, there were not ashramas. There, were, there weren't uh, really like, there weren't communities of brahmacharis and sannyasis. There wasn't the type of, at uh, least, uh, the type of preaching Bhakti Siddhanta, really following Lord Chaitanya, going all over India. Lord Chaitanya traveled extensively in his Madhya Leela in the six years of his life that he was traveling. Of course, he went to Vrindavan from Bengal, which is really halfway across India. And uh, he traveled around South India. He inspired Tukaram, who preached in West India. So Bhaktivinoda Thakur did not, he was a householder, did not travel like that. But in his own community, uh, he inspired many people, uh, including leading citizens. But it was Bhakti Siddhanta who then manifested sort of a, you could say, a uh, the forerunner, direct forerunner of ISKCON, the model where there are ashrams, there are brahmacharis, sannyasis, and of course, grihastas. And there is uh, aggressive, not in the bad sense of the word, <laughs> there is uh, vigorous uh, traveling and preaching, opening up centers in many different cities. And, and of course, Bhakti Nautankar sent one of his books to the West, and there are, there are many powerful statements from Bhakti Nautankar about the need to preach in the West. So preaching in the Western countries uh, effectively, powerfully, and actually establishing Krishna consciousness in its pure form in the Western countries, Bhakti Nautankar is, is the first one that really... Uh, directly articulated this. Of course, ultimately it goes back to Lord Chaitanya, that Prithivite Ache Jata Nagarati Gram, and all the towns and villages of the world. Prithivi means the, literally in Sanskrit, means the wide earth. It's a name, it comes from the, the word Prithu. It's actually the feminine, you know the word Prithu, uh, the great avatar. Prithu also in Sanskrit means very wide and broad. And Prithu actually cultivated and reorganized the earth. So Prithvi or Prithivi is a feminine, 
and it means something like the white earth. And so uh, Lord Chaitanya first gave this vision. Of course, you could trace it back to Krishna. Lord Krishna said that uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, Bhoktaram Jagyas Tapasam, I'm the enjoyer of sacrifice and austerity, Sarvaloka Maheshram, the Lord of all the worlds, of all the worlds, not just the Lord of India. And Suradam Sarvabhutanam, the well-wishing friend of every creature. And the word well-wishing is Suhrit, which literally means good heart. Literally means good heart. Hrit is the English heart. And Su means good. So Krishna is, the, is good-hearted toward everyone. He's the well-wishing friend of everyone. So Lord Krishna, in many places in the Gita, declares that he is the Lord. Sarvastya Chaham I'm in the heart of every living being. I am the Lord of all creatures. And so it was Lord Chaitanya, who's of course the same person, Krishna, who in the same spirit as the Lord of all creatures, Krishna says uh, in the Gita, Pitaham Asya Jagato, I am the father of this universe, Mata and the mother, Data, the creator, Pitamaha, the father, the grandfather. Actually, in Sanskrit, you say Father Grand, <laughs> Pitamaha. So this is a clear message of Krishna. Lord Chaitanya, who's Krishna himself, then says that my intention is to spread my mission, my glories, all over the earth, all over the wide earth. And then it was Bhaktivinoda Thakur, among the great Acharyas, who actually uh, articulated this in a modern language, in a modern context, and with and, and took the first step. I mean, the, the mere fact that Bhaktivinoda Thakur preached in English, wrote books in English, he uh, he mastered all the intellectual currents of his day, and uh, he was a leading intellectual. He was totally up to date. He knew what all the great thinkers were saying. And then Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, that's my point, was born into all of this. And so it's very interesting to see that given Krishna's statements about the universality of his lordship, of his concern for all living beings, given how Lord Chaitanya then expressed this. And then Bhakti Vinod Thakur translated all of this, enacted all of this in the modern world, and this is what Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur inherited. And Bhakti Siddhanta was very much, he was very much attuned to this. In fact, it's what he was thinking about constantly, this inheritance and his role in not only preserving, but extending, applying, expanding this glorious inheritance. In the material world, people are, you know, they like to be proud of their families, especially if your dad's not in jail and, you're, you know, and your mother's kind of decent. So, but people liked it, you know, like, for example, in Europe in the old days, uh, the, the lords, the great persons would have, of course, great estates and they would have galleries. They were called galleries where they would have paintings, no photographs, and they would have galleries of all their uh forefathers and their and, and and the great ladies and and so that would be typical in every house of every respectable person they would have they would show their lineage and so our spiritual lineage is beyond compare no one in the world can point to such a glorious distinguished learned pure powerful lineage as the Gaudiya Vaishnavas and so Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur is a central key figure in this. And of course, he sent some of his disciples to, to England, to London. Uh, the results were a little, you know, they tried and they achieved something, but ultimately a little underwhelming. He called them back. And, and then, of course, our Prabhupada, inspired by his guru, keenly aware of, of not only the example of his guru, uh, but also his direct instruction. When it's very famous that when Prabhupada first met Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, 
and saw that uh, Abhay Charande was a learned young person, was learned, fluent in English, college educated, which was which was a actually small minority of Indians at the time. The number of the percentage of, of Indians under the Raj, the British colony, who actually had a college education, uh, it was a very small number. And at that time, we should all, I mean, now if you think of Calcutta, you don't think of the most organized, uh, you know, well-kept city on earth, I, I have to say, although it's, you know, it has its glories. But, but actually, uh, for a long time, uh, Calcutta was the capital of the Raj. It was the intellectual center of India. And uh, it was in this intellectual center that, that, uh, that Lord Chaitanya's movement revived and began to flourish. And so Prabhupada, um, he, inher- he inherited this from ecstatic cries. He inherited this from Bhakti Siddhanta, this, uh, and he, he preached in English. I mean, when Prabhupada was, after Prabhupada started ISKCON, he'd be in India and he'd be giving lectures when there were, where there were hundreds or thousands of Indians, many of whom didn't speak English. And there would be maybe, you know, a dozen or two of his disciples and Prabhupada would give his lectures in English. So Prabhupada definitely inherited because Prabhupada also, as a liberated soul, inherited from Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati talk with the determination, the, the understanding of what Lord Chaitanya really wanted. And so I always think on these days, I mean, we can, of course, tell many anecdotes and stories and, you know, nectar and all that. And, and we, of course, we should always preserve that and, and relish that. But to me, the real point of these days is how to serve these great souls. Not simply to regale ourselves with with anecdotes, but how do we actually serve them? How do we understand, just as Prabhupada uh, gave that perfect example of how you respond to the mercy of your spiritual master. Occasionally, Prabhupada would tell stories. I mean, he would, you know, there were a few stories he would tell about his guru. But, you know, 99.9% of, of, of Prabhupada's response to his guru, Prabhupada's way of glorifying his guru was not anecdotes. It was serving his guru, carrying out, expanding the mission of his guru, understanding perfectly and intimately what his guru wanted and doing it. That's the way that Prabhupada, for the most part, glorified, honored, and remembered his spiritual master. So it seems to me that uh, the, the most important, and of course, we should talk about Bhakti Siddhanta, we should remember his life, his example, but it seems to me that the most important way to glorify him to honor him is to rededicate ourselves to his mission, which of course Prabhupada, our Prabhupada in, in a historically unique and uh, incredible way, Prabhupada took his guru's mission. He had to, sometimes people say, well, Prabhupada left the Gaudiya Math. Prabhupada didn't leave the Gaudiya Math. There was no Gaudiya Math. I mean, there were different branches here and there with the name Gaudiya Math, but Bhakti Siddhanta's united pan-Indian movement no longer existed. It had disintegrated, and Prabhupada explains exactly why that happened. Prabhupada was very clear about why that happened, the failure to follow Bhakti Siddhanta's order to form a governing body and so on, and that's why Prabhupada took so much care to prevent history from repeating. So Prabhupada in establishing ISKCON, in establishing a very clear and a very clear and solid administrative foundation and in imbibing perfectly the spirit of Bhakti Siddhanta, 
that was the best service. That's how Prabhupada glorified his guru. That's how Prabhupada glorified his guru by dedicating himself, heart and soul, giving his life to make his guru's mission a success. And so on this day, and every day, but especially today, uh, I believe that's what we should do. That each of us uh, should rededicate ourselves and really to use Prabhupada's expression, tax our brains to see how we can um, do more without obviously driving ourselves to nervous or physical exhaustion. I mean, you know, we're, we're actually adults now. <laughs> in the old days, we were, in the old days, we were very enthusiastic, but um, we weren't the most mature creatures on earth. And so, uh, you know, we have to take care of ourselves. We obviously have to keep ourselves healthy, physically, mentally, uh, intellectually, and of course, ultimately spiritually. But within a healthy, balanced life, each of us, I mean, and somehow or other, here we are in the Western countries. Here we are. And, and, and of course, I, I wanted to mention, and I, uh, this is really central to, to our lives. And that is that when Prabhupada first met his guru, his guru told him that he should preach, you know, to, to the, to in the West or in, in English. And Prabhupada took that as everything. Even though he was a householder, he had children, and uh, he couldn't immediately uh, do what he later did. But he was always thinking about that. He was always thinking about Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur's instruction. And the fact that Bhakti Siddhanta, although at that time he didn't really have a, uh, you could say, a successful mission in the Western world, and he had a very successful mission in India, because preaching Krishna consciousness in India is like preaching Christianity in America. If you're a charismatic preacher or a good preacher and you're, you know, serious and all that, and you go out and you preach Christianity, you're going to get lots of followers. You know, you can, maybe you can develop a mega church or something. But so even though Things weren't really happening in the West. Bhakti Siddhanta sent people to the West. And, but still, he gave Prabhupada that order. He gave Prabhupada that order. And Prabhupada enshrined Bhakti Siddhanta's order to him. He enshrined that order in his Pranam Mantra. So that every day, every one of Prabhupada's disciples and followers, because, you know, it doesn't matter where you are in the pecking order. It, it, you know, it's not that if I was initiated by Prabhupada, therefore somehow I have some secret or I have a, a unique relationship. Whoever dedicates himself to Prabhupada the most has the most intimate relationship. I've explained this many times. If it were the fact that if by being Prabhupada's direct disciple, you automatically have a stronger relationship with Prabhupada, that would lead to an absurd conclusion. Because if that were the case, then in Prabhupada's mission, every succeeding generation would have a weaker and weaker connection with Prabhupada. Which is absurd because, so as I often explain, Prabhupada actually had two positions in his mission, two explicit positions. One position was as a Diksha Guru. Another position, which was actually more important and which Prabhupada uh, considered more important, was that he was the founder of Acharya Viscon. So on all of his books, Prabhupada didn't put his name and then Diksha Guru of Iskand. On all of his books, he put his, he had his name put, and, and actually when it, this wasn't put, he threw people out of the movement, his own disciples, for taking that title off. You know, his name, and then founder Acharya of ISKCON. When Prabhupada introduced himself to leading people, like whether political leaders or whoever, cultural leaders, he didn't say... I am A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami. I am the Diksha Guru of ISKCON. 
He presented himself as the founder Acharya Viscon. And no matter who your guru is, Prabhupada is equally our founder Acharya. Prabhupada is not my founder Acharya more than he's the founder Acharya of my disciples. And so in Prabhupada's most important role, as of course, Prabhupada's disciples should be obviously, you know, just let them cut in line when there's a prashana line, <laughs> and, you know, and things like that. I mean, I appreciate all the little perks, but in the um, in the most important sense, in terms of the purpose of your life, in terms of at the end of your life, how valuable was your life to Prabhupada? In terms of being empowered receiving direct empowerment from Krishna, from Lord Chaitanya, through the Parampara, through Prabhupada, whoever your guru is, you have the same uh, access, you have the same power of relationship with the Parampara if you actually dedicate yourself. So therefore anyone with any bona fide ISKCON guru can become the most powerful preacher. And uh, it's open for everyone. It's open for everyone. Prabhupada, I'll just quote one little anecdote because it is philosophical. It's not just cute. And that is one time we were walking with Prabhupada in Rancho Park in Los Angeles, which was my neighborhood park when I was growing up. We, I would walk with Prabhupada over the, you know, the baseball fields where I used to play, past the tennis courts where I used to play. It was kind of, a, I don't want to say cognitive dissonance, but it was um, definitely two worlds coming together. And uh, so we were walking with Prabhupada there, and one time, I remember very clearly, I can just see it as if it's happening, what is happening now, and Prabhupada stopped. When he wanted to make a point, a really important point, sometimes he would stop in his walk and put his cane down. Ambrish, I'm sure you remember that. You remember that? So he was really pleading with us to take his mission seriously. And you may think, you know, because Prabhupada gets all this worship, and you may think that, yeah, back in those days, if Prabhupada said jump, everyone said how high. But the fact is that despite the fact that we, as immature young devotees, thought that we were surrendered to Prabhupada, actually, in retrospect, Prabhupada sometimes really, you know, it was hard for him to get us to do certain things. Like, for example, Prabhupada struggled unsuccessfully, actually, to get all of his disciples or most of them to read his books. And Prabhupada, I remember he joked one time sarcastically in a, in a class in L.A. He said, you should read these books. So he's, he said that you are, you know, you're selling my books, which I appreciate. But so if someone asks you, uh, sir, you're selling these books. Do you also read them? Then you can tell them, no, I don't read the books. I only sell them. <laughs> and if you consider just, you know, a little tough love here. Prabhupada had thousands and thousands of disciples. How many of them who are, who are alive are actively engaged in, in spreading his mission? Which is connected to the fact that a lot of people didn't read his books and didn't really have that powerful connection based on Vani. So in any case, Prabhupada stopped in his walk and he quoted the verse from Bhagavad Gita. Uh, chapter 11, where Krishna says, nihata purvam evam. Literally, by me alone, all of these soldiers have already been killed. Nimitta matram bhava, become just the instrument, Savyasacha. So Prabhupada said that he actually took the part of Krishna, he was kind of like speaking like Krishna Arjun talking, Prabhupada speaking both parts. And so he said, um, Arjuna, do not think that these soldiers are going home again. They're not going back home. They're going to die here. I've already slain them. Now you take the credit 
And if you don't take the credit, I will give it to someone else. And Prabhupada said, he turned to us and he was pleading again, because you have to understand that Prabhupada couldn't get everyone to do everything he wanted, even though everyone was jumping up and down and bowing at his feet. And so Prabhupada said, why don't you become Krishna's instrument? Krishna is offering this to you. Krishna has already spread his Sankirtan movement all over the world, but he will give you the credit. Why don't you take the credit? If you don't take it, someone else will get it. But why don't you take it? And so if there's anything to remember about Bhakti Siddhanta, it's that he dedicated his life to serving the mission of his father. And, and, and you could say, you know, his father and great inspiration, Bhakti Nyotakur. And Prabhupada was inspired by this. Prabhupada, more than anyone else in the world, took seriously, took completely to heart the desire of his spiritual master. And he dedicated his life to it. So now, if you look around, you'll find that the Hare Krishna movement in the West, despite the fact there are many excellent devotees, there are many great souls, there are many excellent devotees, there are many excellent programs. Here, for example, I think uh, Akuti, my god sister Akuti, I've been told is responsible for that amazing uh, echo farm or whatever you call it, which is an extraordinary accomplishment. There are great schools here. Uh, this, this community itself is a very, it's an extraordinary community, so many great souls. So it's not a question of blaming someone. It's not a question of pointing out that, you know, this person or that person. It's that somehow or other together, we have to expand Prabhupada's Western mission. That's what Bhakti Siddhanta told Prabhupada. We approach Bhakti Siddhanta, Saraswati Thakur, through Prabhupada. That's called Parampara, the ascending process. So therefore, we approach Bhakti Siddhanta, or we serve Bhakti Siddhanta, by serving Prabhupada, who is serving Bhakti Siddhanta. And so we have to serve Bhakti Siddhanta's direct order to our Prabhupada, which defined Prabhupada's life, his mission. So that's the way we serve Bhakti Siddhanta, by serving his mission as revealed and expanded by Srila Prabhupada. So this is a day for me to rededicate myself, to find within myself even more determination. It's like if you're in a, let's say, a, I don't know, football game, volleyball game, I don't know what it will. It's very unlikely that most of you will find yourself in such a game in your future. But, but if you remember, I mean, I used to play sports, and when you're in a game, let's say you're losing or you're not winning, you just and, and you're tired, you're exhausted, somehow you find within yourself that extra strength, that energy, and you just, you go out and you win the game. It, it takes something like that. All of us are doing our best in our own way. Everyone's different. Everyone has different abilities, different limitations. Everyone has a different state of health. Some people, we have different social situations. We have families or we have disciples to take care of. You know, we all, everyone has their life. But the point is that whatever life we have, we have to find something extra inside to somehow rebuild the Western mission on, on the scale that Prabhupada had it and even go beyond that. So that's the way I believe, ultimately, we glorify Bhaktisanta. Of course, we should bow down, we should offer flowers, chant mantras. I mean, we would be offensive if we didn't do those things. But we do those things in order to create within ourselves the proper consciousness that will inspire us to go out and do something. That's why we bow down. That's why we offer the flowers. It's to somehow or other create within ourselves the proper consciousness to go out and do what we have to do for the great Acharyas. So thank you very much. And uh, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to take a shot at answering them. Amarish Prabhu.
My dear old friend. Hare Krishna, thank you very much for the very inspiring class. I really needed to hear it. Um, I've had some experience traveling around the world trying to raise awareness and raise funds for the TOB. And many, many devotees from all over the place have been very enthusiastic. But I've had a hard time with some of the leaders because they have their own program of carrying out what they see is the mission that Shiva Prabhupada gave to them. And that's a lot different than uh, getting involved with the TOP people, whatever. Now, many of the leaders have been very enthusiastic and have jumped on board and have really helped us a lot. But it's difficult in some places, and I won't mention any places, but, <clears throat> but it's uh, been very difficult to get some of the leaders to get involved because they feel like their mission is important and they have to do it for their disciples, you know. So uh, how do we, I wanted to uh, ask you your thoughts on how we get ourselves back on track as a movement and push towards one mission, which is Srila Prabhupada's mission. How do we create that, that togetherness? Thank you. Uh, I guess the way my thinking works, I immediately try to understand what's the root cause of this. Because the, the behavior, of course, you know very well. But where is this really coming from? And um, so I will take advantage of your question, not to say something else, but to... to, to uh, to make a point that, that is very important to me. And that is, I am convinced that there is something wonderful, just ecstatic, magical, that Prabhupada created in us, in ISKCON, which is, has, has, is very much weaker now than it was when Prabhupada was here. And and uh, it and for me it was like and I think that that ingredient that element which has I think is very very weakened is sort of the answer to your question. So when Prabhupada was here, um, ISKCON of course was smaller, and you could say sociologically that's a factor, but but it was very much a uh, like like a, a, a super united movement with extraordinary solidarity. And this manifested in practical ways. For example, if someone, some devotee anywhere was successful in, in preaching or found some way to get through, everyone wanted to incorporate that. And Prabhupada, as soon as Prabhupada saw something was working somewhere, he said, uh, explain this to all the temples. This should be done in all of our temples. And so, I mean, there was intense competition. There was intense competition. When, when my Latin American zone, uh, it, it was the first to ever defeat <laughs> Radha Damodar Sankirtan party in, um, in, in a December marathon. And, uh, I don't think it's because we cheated. I mean, I think we actually did win. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I didn't have absolute control of all, of all the counting the different countries. But, but anyway, so by Krishna's arrangement, um, in January, soon after the marathon, Prabhupada came to Los Angeles, and I flew there to meet him, and Tamal Krishna Goswami also flew there to meet him. And so we were walking with Prabhupada on the, in the Palisades Park in Santa Monica, and, and Prabhupada, um, he is kind of teasing Tamal, because he was, I mean, I forget his exact words, but sort of in American English, he was he was really saying something like, hey, so, uh, you know, Latin America, they beat you. Are you going to take that? What are you going to do about it? I mean, that, that's really what he was saying in his own, you know, Indian English. And so, so Tamal and I were, um, you know, we were laughing. And then, uh, and of course, Prabhupada saw the, that the competition was, you know, it's Krishna conscious. And then I remember Prabhupada stopped. And I'll never forget this. He simply said, I like this competition. 
But even though, so even though Prabhupada said that, but the competition was because okay, Radha Damodar is you know doing this. We have to. We, we're all working together, and so that solidarity, that solidarity was there. So that the TOVP, we all know that it's you know Prabhupada uh, took this very seriously. He very much wanted this. He wanted this as um, to carry out the vision of the previous acharyas and his own vision. And so there was a time when ISKCON had the power to mobilize, to unite, and to do amazing things by getting behind key projects. I mean, as, as Ambrish Prabhu said, I mean, of course, every leader does have to take their own project very seriously. But at the same time, they're international projects. We sold books. I sold a lot of books. I actually won a few marathons in Latin America when I was slightly younger. I mean, there's really, I mean, you can't tell the difference, but I'm a little older now. So we were selling books and we knew, we knew that the books we were selling, uh, those sales were producing large income and the Prabhupada was spending this money to build Mayapur, to build Vrindavan. And, uh, and we were happy to do that. We were happy to do that. So in a sense, what Ambarish Prabhu is calling for, what he, you know, what is needed is that spirit. Prabhupada saw that India is the spiritual center. This is coming from the Krishna West uh, <laughs> deviant. I mean, Prabhupada, even in my deviancy, I have some common sense. And so um, Prabhupada knew that, I'll tell you a story actually about India about Mayapur, since Ambarish's project, of course, is in Mayapur. Uh, in 1976, I was Prabhupada's secretary. Actually, I came to be a secretary. He never gave me one secretarial <laughs> job. He just he just liked me to come and, you know, he wanted, he wanted to tell me things. And so I would kind of, you know, in a, in a respectful sense, hang out with Prabhupada. So one time, uh, it was actually, I think it was Gorpurnima Day is coming is Gorpurnima Day and I was on the balcony and those days we only had the Lotus building and then while I was there Prabhupada was actually personally overseeing the construction of what we called the long building and um, so Prabhupada I was on the balcony chanting and Prabhupada came out on the balcony in the evening and I was watching I'd never seen so many human beings in one place in my life <laughs> Because hundreds of thousands of people were coming into, you know, streaming into our property to go take darshan and go purnima. I mean, even at an L.A. Rams game as a kid, you know, I never saw that many people. And so I was astonished. I'd never seen that much humanity. And they were all coming to see Lord Chaitanya. And so when Prabhupada came in the balcony, I was inspired. And, and I walked over to Prabhupada, offered a basin, and I said, Prabhupada, uh, India is amazing. And Prabhupada kind of looked at me as if I'd committed the fault of damnation by faint praise. And so Prabhupada looked at me and said, it is the most important place in the universe. So again, what Ambarish Prabhu is calling for is a return to Prabhupada's system. I mean, there's many ways in which we have to return. There's a lot of things we have to return to, frankly. But um, to be able to act as a single society, as a united society. And of course, India is the spiritual anchor of the movement. I'm, you know, obviously totally into Western preaching. I want to build a lot of Western anchors also. But Vrindavan, I mean, I can say that uh, for all of my... Uh, rabble-rousing for Western preaching, I can say that my most powerful, my most powerful Krishna conscious experiences took place in Vrindavan uh, in Mayapur and also in the West, but I've, I've had extraordinary, extraordinary experiences in the holy places. And so I know that it's a spiritual world. I personally know that, that, that these places are the spiritual world. And so, um, so that, I guess that would be my reply to you. I think that 
uh, ISKCON has to revive that precious, essential understanding that we had when Prabhupada was here, that we are one society. Because if you think about it, if I can be, you know, we're all adults here and we can talk frankly, I hope. So I'll, I'll be frank here, perhaps and during the last last time I'm invited to give a class here, but <laughs> <laughs> Prabhupada, Prabhupada always explained, and the Bhagavatam explained, that there's, you know, the Kanishta Adhikari, Kanishta, by the way, means lowest in Sanskrit, literally, and Madhyamadhikari and Uttamadhikari. And the Bhagavatam says that the lowest, that the Prakrita Bhakta, a devotee on the material platform, is one one who is sort of, you could say, totally puja-centric. Archayam eva, only in archa, only in, in, of course, that's Krishna there, and we all know that it's Krishna, and I'm not saying that we should in any way neglect deity worship. That's not my point. We come to the temple to get inspiration to see Krishna, because we can see God here, and the whole point is, to walk out the door and keep seeing Krishna in everyone's heart. This is sadhana, Krishna darshana. And that's what the Bhagavatam says. Literally one who undertakes worship of the Lord. Um, worship of the Lord um, only in the... Oh my God. Do I have to go back to my... Only in the deity form. And you don't worship the deity in the hearts of all living beings. In other words, where is Krishna? Oh, he's in the temple. I mean, of course he's in the temple. But every living body is a temple. Every living body is a temple. The deity, this deity, is in the heart of every living being. And we are practicing here so we can see this deity in the hearts of all living beings and in the hearts of other devotees. I mentioned this in reply to Ambarish because if we have temples that are simply puja-centric, I mean, obviously the deity is the deity. But when I say puja is if I go and see the deities, that's my spiritual life, as opposed to, of course, I see the deities, taking that inspiration that I've seen God I go to the temple and I see God face to face. And with that inspiration, I go out to save, to, to, to serve all living beings, to be Krishna's instruments to save them because the deity I worship is in their hearts. Movement where this is an end in itself. If I come to see the deities, I've you know, that's my spiritual life. That's called. Well, the Bhagavatam says very strong things about that material platform. And so in a movement, if we have temples or lots of temples where it's kind of my religious life as I go and see the deities and I'm not, I, I don't lose sleep at night thinking how to save all living beings because the deities in their heart. If that's not, that's not keeping me up at night if I don't wake up every day and worry about that, then every community is totally self-centered. Because if we have temples, if we have communities where people are not losing sleep at night, not constantly discussing among themselves, worrying, acting, how do we save this planet? How do we establish this movement? How do we make Prabhupada's ISKCON a powerful, relevant spiritual force in America, in Europe, then when someone comes around and asks you for money for some other deity, what's that got to do with me? We've got our deity. And it's not about saving the world. It's about spending more and more money on our deity. And so to be frank, I think that's what's, that's my analysis as a historian, as a uh, sort of an irrepressible nuisance in the Hare Krishna movement. I think that um, when, because Prabhupada, despite our own obvious limitations, Prabhupada lifted the whole movement to the Madhyam platform. 
So that even if you were a cook or a pujari, you were cooking to feed Krishna's warriors. If you were a pujari, you were making, you know, dressing the deities beautifully, pleasing the deities so they would smile, so that Prabhupada's preachers would come and be inspired, be inspired and, and, and energized to go out again and, and, and try to save the world. Everything, Prabhupada said it, our temples are like military bases from which we go out to throw the bombs of these books and, and you know, all kinds of preaching. And that the deities have to be served beautifully because it's the deity who is inspiring and empowering the preaching. When the deity is pleased by our devotion, by our worship, then the deity enlightens us, empowers us to go out and carry out Lord Chaitanya's mission. So this was always my understanding of deity worship. And if our ISKCON temples have that spirit, then of course, when you come around or one of your agents, and you remind everyone that this is the way Prabhupada did things. We were all preaching, we were all developing our local centers, but there was a central ISKCON bank, which in those days was a BBT, and that Prabhupada was certainly encouraging and even financing the construction of temples in the West and, and traveling, frankly, risking his own health and ultimately giving his life to travel when he didn't have the strength to travel, to encourage the Western preaching. So he gave everything to develop Western preaching, but he took a part of that to construct a, a, a super powerful mission in Bardvarsha. And so if we can just remember, but again, you see, it, it, it's like, you know, uh, it's the horse and carriers, they go together. You know what they say, that old song, love and marriage, they go together like a horse and carriage, you can't have one without the other. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Love those old songs. Anyway, it's actually, it's, it's a song about chastity. You can't have love without marriage. So, um, if we have, if we can somehow get the Western mission back into Prabhupada's preaching mood, then of course people will say yes when you ask them to, you know, help us keep alive Prabhupada's system and, and, and Prabhupada's wishes. And, and we all build up our local places and we all build up Prabhupada's special projects. Uh, yes. Thank you so much. Um, I, I don't know if I'll be able to phrase it as a proper question, but I, I want to put forward just some ideas and, and, and have you respond. Um, but somehow or another, um, I was thinking about Shadabhakti Siddhanta Saraswati's appearance day coming, and I, I actually took my dictionary and looked up absolute censure you know, from Prabhupada's, uh, Prabhupada's prayer to him that, that, that he so appreciated. And um, it, and like night before last, I think it was, I listened to um, an interview with Ormila, uh, uh, who was speaking about your uh, decentralization in relation to the ISKCON movement. Um, and so what came together in my mind was that I know she's a loyal Prabhupada follower and this kind of person, and yet she was pointing out quite forcefully um, um, some tendency towards um, like managing from the top down. So I think it, my, my topic that I hope you can address is the difference between, um, like, say, micromanaging or um, giving orders and inspiring each of us to act from our own 
individual initiative, which is in relation to Krishna, that sentient, perceiving, uh, feeling. Right. Thank you. Very uh, interesting, important socio-historical question. Um, okay. First of all, Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita that we have to be moderate, really, in all of our human activities. He gives some examples. He says uh, uh, that uh, don't eat too much or too little, don't sleep too much or too little. And then he says, really, in all activities. So if you study the political history of the world, and this is political, because I don't mean political in the pejorative sense, like you're just being political, like you're a, you know, like a selfish, conniving person who's acting for political motives. I'm using political in a more academic sense, involving the exercise of authority and power. And so when you get a bunch of human beings together who form a society, that creates power. Because inevitably, you know, anarchy is neurologically impossible. And so there is power and authority when you have a bunch of people following some common principles or lead. And so who exercises it? Who wields that power? That's a question of political science. And so what I think what history shows us, and this corresponds perfectly to Prabhupada's own instructions, if you look at all of them, is that you can't go to either extreme. Like Krishna says, we have to be moderate. So if you just, if, if you weaken too much the center, and you have this type of centrifugal force going away from the center, history tells us what you get. Eventually you get a bunch of warlords, you know, whether they're, you know, guru warlords or, you know, you know, Grihasta managing warlords and, and, and the center is weak. And, uh, and that's what, a, that's what a confederation is. You know, we used to say ISKCON is a confederation. It's actually not. It's a federation. And, and, and the difference between a confederation and a federation is, in a confederation, the authority is all in the, uh, you know, out in the hinterland. It's all in the different regions. So that all the, and, and so, and then all the different regional powers, they give authority to the center. And the center has power only as it is approved and given by the regional members. America is a federation. And actually, this, by the way, this very point that Romula brought up was probably the central debate in the Federalist Papers. You know, before the, the U.S. Constitution was written, there were these debates among very, very smart, learned people about should America be a confederation or a federation? Because we don't want another England. You know, why recreate England with a deck, with a, you know, with a corrupt king and all that? And so there were people arguing for state power that, you know, the states have the power and the states empower a central government which has no power except that awarded to it by the states and the states can withdraw that power. And the Civil War, I mean, apart from the obvious slavery issue, ultimately the, the, the philosophical issue in the Civil War in America was whether America really should have been or should be a confederation or federation. That was really the, the, the philosophical issue. And so in ISKCON, uh, if you if you weaken the center too much, like I said, you can just get you know guru sannyasi or or managerial warlords, and ISKCON ultimately and, and societies like that tend to dissolve. You know the 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 aggregate, the total society is unstable. It comes unglued regularly in history. So that's what history shows. And that's not obviously not what Prabhupada wanted. And, and, and we know that's not what Prabhupada wanted because he said so in the very first line of his last will and testament. He said the GBC shall be the ultimate managing authority for the entire. So consider these two key adjectives, ultimate and entire. 
you know, my mother always used to say I would have been a good lawyer. <laughs> anyway, she always used to say that to me. So, so that's the first line in Prabhupada's will. That's the first line in Prabhupada's will. So obviously the first line in Prabhupada's will blows out of the water any idea that Prabhupada wanted in a serious sense, a confederation. At the same time, there is an extreme on the other side because federations can lead to tyranny. Central power can become tyrannical and that also destabilizes and ultimately destroys societies. Plato points this out. He said tyranny, I mean, Plato talks, he didn't use the word, but about historical dialectics, you know, thesis, antithesis. And then, so Hegel, Hegel, of course, talked about the historical dialectic. Plato says that political extremes create their opposite so that tyranny leads to anarchy or anarchy leads to tyranny as it did in world in Germany after World War I. Anarchy led to tyranny. And he said, by the way, democracy also, he considered it kind of like, almost, you know, close to anarchy. So, so the point here is that if leadership is too heavy, and there's a problem with oligarchies. Prabhupada mandated an oligarchy called the GBC. And so as I pointed out in my paper on political science, um, that is our system. And, and, and it should be our system. However, we have to be aware that oligarchies have chronic problems. For example, if you live in Arizona, you should probably buy a large supply of sunscreen. You know, you don't necessarily have to move, but you'd better use sunscreen. You'd better go to a dermatologist a few times a year. And so the GBC is our system, but it does oligarchies have chronic problems and we should be aware of them and address them. And one of the big problems of, of, of oligarchies is they tend to become self-absorbed and the members tend to protect them, care about each other because if, if we throw one GBC under the bus, then I may be under the bus tomorrow. And they tend to care more about their own oligarchy than they do about the people they're supposed to govern. Now, I'm not saying that's the case everywhere in ISKCON. I'm just saying it is a problem with oligarchies. And so um, they can be unresponsive. They can, they do tend to believe that an increase of their authority automatically translates into an increase of the welfare of the society they govern. So that if anyone challenges their authority, they see that as an existential threat, not merely to their authority, but to the society they're governing. So that criticism of them, which weakens their status, is actually a threat to the society. And therefore they tend to become unresponsive to criticism and not care as much as they should about the welfare of the people they govern. I'm not accusing the GBC of being guilty to, a, to an extreme degree of all these things. And I'm not saying that the GBC is totally free of all these tendencies. And I'll leave it to all of you to draw your own conclusions. So therefore, obviously, there are dangers on both sides. Extremes are, not, are unstable. If you pull the pendulum to one side, it cannot remain there except by artificial force. And as soon as that artificial force weakens, it swings to the other extreme, which is basically the political history of the world. So therefore, clearly what ISKCON needs is a balance between central and regional, uh, re regional autonomy, central authority, they have to be balanced, like everything else in life, and that balance has to be constantly adjusted. Because it, it's not that you balance it once and for all. That balance is precarious and different historical events will move it to one side or the other. And so basically it's a constant function of learned people, brahmanas, to be monitoring and rebalancing that key relationship between central authority and regional authority. And so I think that's the rational answer.
Oh, Hare Krishna, how are you doing? Oh yes. Thank you, Hare Krishna. So I think I'm a little... Uh, one more question. Yes, last question, okay. Hare Krishna. What I would like to say is that, um, you know, you're right that we have to rededicate ourselves and we have to get the missionary spirit back and not just worship the deity. And, uh, you know, personally, you know, I don't need to brag, but I go out preaching every day, distributing books. But I see that we need more than that. It's not because we've distributed millions of books, literally. And we have a number of book distributors still going out. We are even in our actually distribute quite a number of books here. But we're missing what I feel is what Prabhupada said was the 50% of his mission that he did not accomplish while he was on the planet, which was calm communities, which is Varnashram. And you know yourself that he asked you to go to place and So you know, until we actually show people that way of life, we're not really going to be affected. We can distribute millions of books, but if we can't show people how to live properly, how to have proper, stable family life, how to be healthy by living simply close to nature, by drinking proper cow's milk, by getting our kids away from cities, away from computers, away from the sick modern society, I don't think we'll ever be successful. So I feel that, you know, 
I mean, Shiva Ramaraj is my hero because, as we all know, he has a successful farm project. And to me, that's a very great achievement to establish something like that because we can distribute as many books as we want. We're not going to change the site because most of them are read the books. I mean, occasionally you hear a story of somebody got a book on his shelf and he didn't read it for 20 years and he got it out and he read it. Great. But, you know, not, you don't hear that many stories like that. So I think that personally, I agree with you. We have to rededicate ourselves. We have to carry on distributing books and preaching. But like here in Orlando, how many devotees live here? Hundreds, thousands of devotees. How many of them are involved? Not many. Because most people in the West, they cannot follow very strictly for long periods of time. If there was a proper structure for them, where they were integrated in some community where the people were more accessible to each other instead of everybody's living all over the place here. I mean, the voters here have at least $20 million worth of property. We're all living here, we'll be people everywhere. There's no unification because we've lost this thing that Prabhupada sacrificed. In the last few months of his life, he went to London on his way to Gidenagri. Yes, he was trying, he was trying to go to Gidenagri. Huh? Yeah, you're trying to go to get knocker. I agree. With, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I think your point is well taken. And uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Let's go for it. Okay. So thank you. Thank you all very much. And uh, that's it. Turn off the mic and it's over. Anyway, but thank you. Thank you all very much. And all the people who are listening, I apologize, people, on. Uh, our various media, like if you have questions, I can't, there's no real time for them now, but um, thank, thank you to everybody who, who's listening. Hare Krishna.